Chapter Sixteen of On the Irrawaddy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. On the Irrawaddy by G. A. Henty. Chapter Sixteen. Rejoicing. Every day since the siege had begun, the defenders had fired an occasional shot at the stockade, not with any idea of doing any damage, but in order that the assailant should know that they were still in the cavern. That evening, when the hole had got to the proper depth, Stanley, having prepared his fuse, went up with twenty cartridges in his pocket, accompanied by Meinik. The hole was charged and tamped, and the fuse inserted. This took a considerable time. The fuse had been cut so that an inch of it projected outside the hole. The other eight cartridges were then broken up, and the powder moistened, and a train of some twenty feet long laid from the fuse toward the entrance of the hole. Then a piece of rag was wrapped round one end of the ramrod, and this again was tied to a long rod that had the night before been cut by one of the boys, who had slipped out noiselessly from the entrance. The rag had been moistened and rubbed with gunpowder. Now, Meinik, Stanley said, everything is ready. The rod is sixteen feet long, so that lying down my feet will be just at the edge of the hole, and I shall be able to drop down as soon as I have lighted the train, and bolt. I shall fix a torch, a foot or so from the train, then I shall only have to lift the rod to it, light the rag, set fire to the train, and then slide down and bolt. Now, you must go down first. No, master, Meinik said firmly, I will light the train. I do not think that there is any danger, but whether there is or not, I shall undertake it. If I am killed, it does not matter. Well, if you were killed, all would be lost, for if the explosion did not burst the stone, I am sure that we should never be able to get through it without you to direct us. No, master, if you stay, I stay, and that would only lessen our chances of running down the steps in time. Stanley argued and even ordered, but Meinik was obstinate, and, seeing that the faithful Burman was not to be moved, he reluctantly left the matter in his hands, and went downstairs. He moved a short distance along the ledge and waited. The time seemed an age to him, so that he gave an exclamation of delight when Meinik suddenly came into sight and took his place beside him. "'I have lit the train, master. The powder fizzed up, but did not seem to burn very fast.' It was indeed another two minutes before a deep, muffled roar was heard. There was no further noise, but they heard shouts from the Burmans behind the stockades. They'll be wondering what that sound was, Stanley said, but they'll not be able to tell from what direction it came, for I expect they were pretty nearly all sound asleep. Now let us go up and see the result. They made their way up the steps, which were now in entire darkness. The curtains still hung in its place some ten feet below the obstacle. They lit a torch from the embers in the pan, and then Stanley climbed up into the passage and hastily crawled along. He gave a cry of satisfaction as he approached the end. The explosion had been completely successful. The end of the block lay on the ground. Whether the whole of it had been blown off or not he could not see, but he felt sure that the greater portion must have split off. It was evident that it would take a considerable amount of time, and would require the strength of several men to get the block out. They therefore descended at once to gladden the hearts of those below, with the news that the way out was now available to them whenever they chose to leave. Harry manifested no surprise whatever at the news. I made sure that you would succeed, Stanley. After getting me off as you did, and making your own escape, before it seemed to me that you would have gotten hold of the open sesame of Alibaba, and have only to use the cabalistic words to walk in and out 
wherever you want to go. I don't feel by any means so certain of my own powers as you seem to be, Harry, and I can assure you I was very doubtful whether that shot would succeed. I hoped, at any rate, that it would blow a good bit of the stone out, and, in that case, we could have got the chisels to work again. It was the slanting position of the block that beat us. However, thank goodness the work's done now, and you have only to get a bit stronger, and we'll be off. Oh, I'm quite ready to start now, Stanley. I think it's absurd waiting any longer, for there's never any saying what might take place. That Burmese general, who seems to be an obstinate beggar, might take it into his head to place a guard on the top of the hill, and then all your labour will have been thrown away. Yeah, that is true enough, Harry, and as I recall, I really don't think that travelling now would be likely to do you any serious harm. I will decide on that tomorrow. At any rate, I'll take some men up at once and get that stone out. The task was a difficult one. The block of stone was so nearly the size of the passage that they could not get a rope round behind it, and after trying for two hours in vain, they determined that the only course was to push it before them. They soon found, however, that this was impossible, and that a part, at least, of the stone was remaining in its place. Finally, they succeeded in pushing a loop in the rope over the top of the block, and then, by main force, eight of them pulled it out of the hole, and lowered it onto the top step. By the time that had been done, dawn was approaching, and they therefore returned at once to the chambers below. The men were all much pleased when Stanley told them that they would leave that night. Confident as they felt that the Burmese could not force their way in, a new feeling of nervousness seized them now that the way was open, lest some unforeseen circumstances might occur to prevent their going. The rice that remained was made up into three or four packages. The meat had long before been finished. Stanley had a discussion with Meinik as to how Harry had best be taken through the passage. He could, they agreed, walk along the ledge, with one before and one behind to steady him, and could then be carried up the steps, in a blanket, by four men. He must, of course, be lifted into the passage, and dragged through it to the end. After that it would be easy enough. Six men could carry him in a blanket until far enough away for them to chop poles, without the sound of the axes being heard by the Burmese. From the time they began their work every pain had been taken to deaden sounds. The blanket hung across the passage had acted as a muffler to some extent, but a piece of cloth had always been tied over the hammerheads of the axes to prevent the sharp clinking sounds of the blows on the chisels or stone being heard. As soon as it was dark enough for them to pass along the ledge, Meinik went with Stanley to examine the ground. Fortunately the portion of stone that remained above the level, and prevented the rock from being rolled back, was but small, and they were able to break it up in half an hour with the axes. Then, making their way along without difficulty for another four feet, they found themselves standing upright in the depression in the center of the ruin. Mounting six more steps, they were among the bushes that covered the site of the temple. They now carefully cleared away every fragment of stone from the floor of the passage, and, returning, Stanley gave orders for the start to be made. Two or three shots were fired from the lower entrance to show the enemy that they were there, and on the watch, and then all went up to Harry's room. He had been dressed for the first time, and was ready for the start. Two of the strongest of the Burmans went on first. "'Now, Harry, you are to put your hands on my shoulders. Meinik will follow close behind you, and will keep his arms round you in case you need help. Of course, we shall go along very slowly.' "'I don't think that all these precautions are necessary, Harry, sir. I am sure that I can walk that distance easily enough. Why, you say the stair is only about forty feet.' Oh, I dare say you could, Harry, but we don't want to run any risks. Your head is not very strong at present, and you might turn giddy, or you might stumble. 
So, at present, you will have to just do as you are told. Let us start. Harry did not find it as easy as he had expected, getting out through the lower opening, and he was by no means sorry to have the support of Stanley and Meinik as he proceeded along the ledge. They moved very carefully and slowly, and all were greatly relieved when he sat down on a blanket laid on the steps. Now, lie back, Harry. We shall have no difficulty in getting you up here. Two Burmans took the upper end of the blanket, Stanley and Meinik the lower, and they were soon at the top of the steps. You are not very heavy now, Harry, but you are a good deal heavier than you were when we brought you in below. Now, the next is the most difficult part of the work. Once you get through this passage, it will be plain sailing. You see, you'll have to be dragged. The place is only two feet high, so that it would be impossible to lift you at all. We've made the floor as smooth as we can, but I'm afraid that there are a good many projecting corners that will try you a good deal. It can't be helped, Stanley. Far away, as soon as you like. The rest of the party were now all gathered on the steps below, and Meinik and Stanley, getting up first into the hole, received Harry as the others lifted him, and, with the aid of two of the Burmans, laid him on his blanket in the passage. Now, Stanley said to the two men who took the other end of the blanket, keep it as tight as you can, and when I say lift, we will all lift together, and move him forward a few inches. Do not hurry about it. We have plenty of time before us. They were packed so closely that they had each but only one arm available. Little by little they moved him along, gaining some six inches each time. Then all had to move, so as to place themselves for the next effort. However, in five or six minutes they had him through, and carried him up into the open air. The rest of the party at once joined them, and with three of the natives on each side of the blanket, they were soon beyond the circle of ruins, and making at a brisk pace through the forest. After going for a quarter of a mile they stopped, cut some poles for the hammock, and in a short time were on their way again, having placed in it one of the bags of rice as a pillow for Harry. They travelled for some hours, and then halted to cook some rice. All had slept a good deal during the day, so that after resting for an hour they proceeded on their way again. They had no fear whatever of pursuit, and the only danger that they could incur was for meeting with a band similar to that which had carried Harry off. When they rigged up the hammock, they had cut wood for torches to protect themselves from tigers. These were thrown away as soon as the daylight broke. At midday they halted again for another hour, and then, continuing their journey, arrived at the village before nightfall. They were received with great joy, the villagers setting up a shout of welcome, the friends of the men and boys being especially exuberant in their joy, for they had become extremely anxious at their long absence. The two troopers were still there, and these saluted Stanley with less than the usual stiff formality of the Mohammedan soldier. Stanley himself laughed. "'No, I don't look much like a British officer at present,' he said, in their language. "'Well, has everything been quiet here?' "'Yes, Sahib. A sour brought us orders from the general to remain here, and to send at once if we heard any news of you. We sent off one of the villagers when the man came back to fetch the others, and said that you had good hopes of getting Lieutenant Brooke Sahib out of the hands of the Burmese.' "'I will write a note,' Stanley said. "'Get your horses saddled at once. Directly we have made Mr. Brooke comfortable, I will give you the letter.' During the time that Stanley had been absent, the houses had been re-erected, and the village had assumed its general appearance. A hut was at once handed over to them, and Harry laid on a bamboo pallet. He had not slept most of the way down. "'You see, I was quite right, Stanley. I told you that the journey would be nothing. Fortunately, it has turned out so. Meinik has already killed a chicken, and will make it into broth for you. It will be a change for you after your diet of rice. The cooking was excellent for the first three or four days, but it fell off sadly.' That was one of the reasons why I gave way to your wish to start at once. 
You've done wonderfully well, but a constant diet of rice is not quite the thing for building up a sick man. Now I'm going to write a few lines to the general to say that you have got safely down, but will need at least another week before you are able to sit on a horse. Of course you can be carried on, but I think that the air here is a good deal more healthy and bracing than it is at Prome, and the longer you stay here the better. Stanley's note was a short one. It merely said that he had succeeded in getting his cousin, and the trooper who was carried off at the same time from the hands of the Burmese, but that Harry was still very weak, and that if he himself could be spared, he would stay with him at the village for another week or ten days, at the end of which time he would ride by easy stages to Prome. Three days later the trooper returned with a note from the general. "'I congratulate you most heartily on having rescued your cousin,' he wrote. "'By all means stay where you are until he is quite strong enough. This place is not at all healthy at present, and we shall not be moving forward for at least another three weeks.' Stanley remained at the village for another fortnight, and at the end of that time Harry had so far recovered that he was quite capable of making a short day's journey on horseback. Two of the men who had aided in the rescue had gone to Prome, with an order from Stanley on the staff paymaster, for the rewards that had been promised to the villagers and the two Burmese soldiers. They returned with the money, and the men were all highly delighted at the result of the expedition. Stanley retained the services of the two soldiers as long as he remained in the village. He had no fear whatever of the same band returning that had before visited the village, and he learned that no others had been heard of in the neighborhood, but, at the same time, he thought it as well that a man should be on guard night and day at each end of the village. The peasants agreed to watch at one end, while the two Burmese soldiers and the troopers took charge of the other end. The bulk of the villagers were engaged in forming a strong stockade round, to defend themselves in case of further attack, and Stanley promised to send them down twenty muskets, and a supply of ammunition, as soon as he got to Prome. There was real regret on the part of the Burmese when the time came for the party to start. It had been something altogether new to them to have officials among them who paid for everything. These Englishmen had treated them kindly, and were pleased and contented with everything. The money that the five men and two boys had earned had enriched the village, and had enabled them to more than replace their losses by the recent raid and if Stanley had accepted all the presents of fruit, fowls, and eggs they would have given him, he would have needed a couple of extra horses to convey them. A strong pony had been purchased for Meinik, and, after taking a hearty leave of the villagers, the party rode off. "'I wish we had such a good cook as your man, Stanley,' Harry said, as they journeyed along at a walk. "'I have never tasted better soup than he serves up. I must really get him to teach our mess-cook how to make it. Do you know what it is, Harry?' I have not the least idea. It might be anything. I think that it tasted to me more like stewed eels than anything else. You're not very far out. It's made of the creatures you turned your nose up at. Snakes. Nonsense, Stanley. It is, I can assure you. I would not tell you before, because it might have set you against it. That soup you had in the cave was made from snake flesh. The recesses in parts of the caves swarmed with them, and the men laid in quite a store of them before we were besieged. Unfortunately, they would not keep well even in these cool chambers, so we had to fall back on rice. You liked it so much that, though there was no occasion to have gone on with the snake soup, after we got to the village I continued to give it to you, for it is very nourishing. Well, I am glad you did not tell me at the time, but I must own that it was excellent, and I think that in future I shall have no objection to snake in that form. They are just as good in other ways, Stanley replied. The Burmans are no fools, and I consider that snake and lizards are very much better eating than their mutton, which is tasteless stuff at the best. We still have to have a big settlement when we get back, Stanley. 
Of course, all those men you paid and the guards you bribed are entirely my account, to say nothing of my share of the general expenditure. Well, the general expenses are practically nothing, Harry. I invited you to come with me, and, of course, you were my guest. As to the other matter, that also is my business. I would not say so, for I had not plenty of funds, but what with my pay as interpreter, and the year of back pay that I got when the Gazette came out, I have plenty of my income to pay for it, without breaking in upon the amount I told you I had got for those rubies. Oh, I should pay you, Stanley, if you were rolling in money. Not that I should mind taking money from you if I wanted it, but my expenses, since I landed here, have not been anything approaching my pay and allowances. And I have, besides, as I told you, an income of five hundred pounds a year of my own. You've risked your life for me, and I am not going to let you pay the piper as well. All right, if it pleases you. Harry, I am delighted at having been able to save you, and just at present money does not seem an important matter one way or the other. So, if it really would be a satisfaction to you to pay, I will certainly not deprive you of it. Although they only travelled ten miles the first day, Harry acknowledged that he was as tired as a dog when he dismounted, and was so stiff the next morning that he had to be helped on to his horse. However, this gradually wore off, and on the evening of the fourth day they arrived at Prome. Leaving Harry at his regimental camp, Stanley rode to the headquarters and there dismounted. Meinik had led the second horse after Harry dismounted, and now took them both across to the lines, with the air of a man who has only been away for a few hours. Stanley at once went up to the general. "'Welcome back, lad,' Sir Archibald said. "'You have been longer away than we expected when you started. I am glad indeed that you succeeded in rescuing your cousin, and we are all burning to hear about it. I wrote that note to you in a hurry, for I was on the point of going on a round of inspection of the camp, when your sower arrived. I intended to question him concerning you on my return, for I had no idea that, after making such a long journey, he would start back at once, but I found that he had ridden straight off, directly the note was handed to him. You must dine with me to-day, and tell me all the story. I see from the color of your skin that you have been in disguise again. Yes, sir, there were materials for dyeing the skin in the village but nothing that availed to take it off. It's gradually going, and, as I shall be now able to get some strong alkali from the doctor, I hope I shall be presentable by to-morrow. They are honorable marks, the colonel said with a smile. I don't think any of us would mind being so colored for a bit, if we had done such good work as you have. But I won't detain you now, for dinner will be ready in half an hour. Stanley hurried to his room, took a bath, donned his mess uniform, and was ready for the time the bugle sounded. Three or four of the staff were, as usual, members of the party. After the meal was over, he was requested to narrate his adventures at full length. The story was necessarily a long one, and, when he concluded, all joined the general in hearty commendation for the manner in which he had carried out the adventure. "'Your last story was a stirring one, Mr. Brooke,' the general said. "'But this is even more so. When I received your first note, I thought it next door to madness for you to try to get your cousin, badly wounded as you knew him to be, from the hands of the Burmese. It's not an easy thing to get any man out of prison, but when the man was unable to help himself it seemed well-nigh impossible, and I was greatly afraid that, instead of saving his life, you would lose your own. Of course the fact that you had successfully traversed the country before was strongly in your favor, but then you were unencumbered, and the two things were therefore not to be compared with each other. I shall, of course, put you in orders to-morrow as having performed a singularly gallant action, in rescuing Lieutenant Brooke of the 47th and a sour from their captivity by the Burmese from the prison in Tongu. And you have arrived just in time, for after endeavouring to fool us for the past three months by negotiations never meant to come to anything, 
The enemy are now advancing in great force, and are within a few miles of the town, so we are likely to have hot work of it. From all accounts, they have got nearly as large an army together as Bandula had. I don't know whether they have learned anything from his misfortunes, but I am bound to say that the court does not seem to have taken the lesson in the slightest degree to heart, and their arrogance is just as insufferable as it was before a shot was fired. Stanley learnt that there had already been one fight. The enemy were advancing in three columns, their right consisting of fifteen thousand men commanded by Suda Woon, had crossed the Irrawaddy, and was marching down the other bank, with the apparent objection of a recrossing below Prome and cutting the British line of communication. The centre, from twenty-five to thirty thousand strong, commanded by the Kiwangi, was coming down the left bank of the river, accompanied by a great fleet of war-boats. The left division, fifteen thousand strong, led by an old and experienced general, Maha Nimiao, was moving parallel with the others, about ten miles distant from the centre, but separated from it by a thick and impenetrable forest. A reserve of ten thousand men, commanded by the king's half-brother, occupied a strongly fortified position at Maloon. In addition to these, a large force was gathered near Pegu, and threatened an attack upon Rangoon. On the 10th of November, a fortnight before Stanley's return, two brigades of native infantry, under Colonel MacDowell, had marched out to dislodge Maha Nimiao, whose division threatened to turn the British right, and to move round to its rear. The force was divided into three columns, one moving directly toward the enemy's position, the others, marching by circuitous routes, so arranged as to arrive at the point of attack at the same time, were to attack in flank and rear, while the main body assailed the enemy in front. The Burmese had, however, obtained information from spies of the intended movement, and advancing boldly met the British columns halfway, skirmishing with them hotly in the woods, and threatening an attack by large bodies of horse. The centre drove the Burmese before them, and reaching their stockaded position, Colonel MacDowell, while reconnoitering it, was killed by a ball from a musket, and as the two flanking columns did not arrive as expected, the force was compelled to fall back. The retreat was conducted in good order, but the loss was heavy, as the Burmese pressed hotly upon them for several miles. Since this unfortunate affair, the enemy had steadily advanced. Maha Nimiao had moved directly upon Prome, advancing slowly and constantly stockading himself. The centre had also advanced, and was now fortifying some heights above the river, five miles away, within sight of Prome. Sudawoon was entrenching himself on the opposite bank. All these divisions were working day and night, advancing steadily but slowly, and erecting formidable lines of entrenchments as they went, and it seems to be the intention of the Burmese general to proceed in that manner, until the whole of his troop were gathered within a very short distance of the town, and then to rush upon it from all sides. In the morning Stanley went to the lines of the 47th. Harry had, of course, told his story on his arrival, and the tale had circulated generally through the regiment, and as he rode in the men ran out of their huts and cheered him heartily. No less warm a greeting did he receive from the officers, in spite of his protest that they had really been in no great danger or difficulty at any time. "'What I specially admire,' one of the officers said, laughing, "'is that any man should have run all this risk on purpose to prevent himself from coming into an earldom.' You had only to leave the matter alone, and there you were, the heir to titles and estates. <laughs> I should have been haunted by Harry's ghost, Stanley laughed. It would have been as bad as Banco and Macbeth. He would have sat at my table and stood at the head of my bed. No, no, that would have been a much more serious affair to face than a party of Burmese. 
The titles and estates would have been too dear at the price. "'Well, you behaved like a brick, anyhow,' the colonel said. "'And there is not a man in the regiment who would not have been proud indeed if he had accomplished such a feat. Half my subalterns were talking at dinner last night of learning the language, so that if the chance fell in their way they might emulate your doings. "'It's rather a tough language to master,' Stanley replied. "'It gave me more trouble than the four or five Indian languages I speak. I'm afraid the campaign will be over a long time before any of your officers learn to talk Burmese well enough to pass as natives.' After the failure of the expedition of the Tenth, no further effort had been made against the enemy. Indeed, the troops had been withdrawn from their outlying positions, and there had even been a feint made of embarking stores, as if with the intention of retiring down the river, in hopes of tempting the Burmese to make an attack. The season had now come when operations could again be carried on, and the general was anxious to strike a decisive blow at the enemy, and then to set forward on the march toward Ava. As to the result of the fight, no one entertained the slightest doubt, although the disparity in numbers was very great, for while the Burmese commander had nearly seventy thousand men at his disposal, Sir Archibald Campbell had no more than six thousand, of whom about one-half were British. It was determined that the main attack should be made on the division of Maha Nimiao. This was now some six or seven miles away, and beyond the fact that it was very strongly entrenched in the jungle, no information whatever could be gained for the most vigilant watch was kept up by them, and all efforts to pass native spies into their lines failed. But it was known that among his division were eight thousand Shans from Upper Burma, and as these men had not hitherto come in contact with us, it was expected that they would fight with more courage and resolution than those who had become acquainted with our power. A large number of princes and nobles were with the force, and great reliance was placed by the Burmese upon three young ladies of high rank who were believed by them to be endowed with supernatural gifts, and to have the power of rendering the missiles of the English innocuous. These young women, dressed in warlike costume, constantly rode among the troops, animating them by their presence, and exhorting them to deeds of courage. The English had received vague rumours of the doings of these Burmese Jones of Arc, and thought it probable that the enemy would fight better than usual. On November 30th arrangements were made for attacking the enemy on the following morning. The flotilla were to open a furious cannonade upon their works on both sides of the river. A body of native infantry were to drive in the advance posts of the centre, while the main force was to attack their left in two columns, one moving directly against it, while the other was to attack on the right flank, thus preventing the enemy from retreating in the direction of the centre. Four regiments of native infantry were left in Prome. General Cotton commanded the main attack, and, soon after the column moved out from the camp, a tremendous cannonade showed that the flotilla was engaged with the Burmese, on both sides of the river. The column, which was composed of the 41st and 89th regiments, with two battalions of native infantry, proceeded some distance before becoming engaged with the enemy's outposts. As the Burmese had been deceived by the cannonade, and believed that the attack was entirely upon the centre, the troops therefore reached their main position, around two native villages, without serious opposition. As they issued from the jungle into the cleared space in front of the stockade, they rapidly formed up under a tremendous fire, and rushed forward to the attack. The old Burmese general, who was too infirm to walk, could be seen, carried from point to point in a litter, cheering on his men, while the three Amazons exposed themselves fearlessly to the fire. The latter parties, however, rushed forward unchecked, and in spite of the opposition of the enemy, scaled the stockade at one point, and won a footing on the rampart of earth behind it. 
Others pressed after them, and soon a destructive fire was opened upon the crowded mass, pent up between the outer stockade and the next. The Burmese method of forming stockade behind stockade was useful against a foe of no greater dash and energy than themselves, but was absolutely fatal when opposed to English troops, who gave them no time to fall back through the narrow openings in the palings. These were soon blocked by the dying and dead. Some of the Shans, led by their chiefs, fought with desperate courage, but were unable to stand the advance of the British, whose steady volleys, poured in at distances of a few yards, just swept them away. Wounded horses rushing madly about in the throng added to the terrible confusion. Groups of men endeavoured to cut away through the stockades behind, others strove to climb over. Maha Nimiao was killed, while bravely exhorting his men to stand their guard, and one of the heroic Amazons was shot. As soon as the troops reached the spot where she fell, and saw that she was a woman, she was carried into a cottage, and there died a few hours afterwards. Stockade after stockade was carried, until the whole position fell into our hands. In the meantime, the other column, commanded by General Campbell himself, and consisting of the 13th, 38th, 47th, and 87th regiments, and the 38th Madras Infantry, had moved down onto the other side of the Nawine River, and taken up a position to command the ford there, by which the fugitives from the stockade must cross on their way to join the centre. As the crowd of frightened men issued from the jungle and poured across the ford, the artillery opened upon them with shrapnel, and completed their discomfiture. All thought of joining the centre was abandoned, and, re-entering the jungle, they scattered, and the greater portion of them started for their homes, intent only on avoiding another contest with their foes. Another of the Burmese heroines was killed at the ford. Three hundred men had been killed at the storming of the stockade, but a far greater loss took place in the retreat, very few of the Shans ever regaining their country, the greater portion perishing from starvation in the great forests through which they travelled in order to escape the Burmese authorities, who would have forced them to rejoin the army. End of chapter 16 Rejoining Recording by Mike Harris